Brethren, I invite you to turn in your copies of the scripture to the second book of Samuel, chapter 3. As you're turning there, in our Bibles there are two books of Samuel, but initially there was only one. And it was one extended discussion of David's life and his reign as king over Israel. But in our Bibles we have two books, the first book being primarily that book that describes his reign or his uh, anointing and his, uh, 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 the days before his reign, and then the second book, his reign. So today we're in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel. I'll be reading the entire chapter. The entire chapter is our text. We'll not be going verse by verse through the text, but I will be highlighting some of the, the aspects of uh, this chapter for us today. Hear once again the very word of God from the second book of Samuel, chapter 3. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Nabal of Carmel. The, term, the third, Absalom, the son of Mekah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithraim, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Ahiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why do you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David. Yet, now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michael whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Bahuram. And then Abner said to him, Go back. So he went back. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David, By my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel 
from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in person. And then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that is that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, so that they may, take, so that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then, David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron, because David had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner, son of Ner, had come to the king and that the king had sent him away and that he had gone in peace. So Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he is gone. You know Abner, son of Ner. He came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you're doing. Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern at Sirah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into his inner chamber as if to speak with him privately. And there, to avenge the brother, his brother Azahel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and he died. Later, when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, my son, uh, the son of Ner. May his blood fall on the land of Joab and on his whole family. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy, or who leans on a crutch, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks food. Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he had killed their brother Azahel in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and all the people with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. King David himself walked behind uh, Abner. They buried Abner in Hebron, and the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept also. The king sang this lament for Abner. Should Abner have died as the lawless die? Your hands are not bound, your feet are not fettered. You fell as one who falls before the wicked. And all the people wept over him again. Then they all came and urged David to eat something while, he was still, while it was still day. But David took an oath saying, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. All the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. So on that day, all the people there and all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. Then the king said to his men, Do you not realize that a commander and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? And today, though I am the anointed king, I am weak. And these sons of Zeruiah are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we read of these accounts 
of the lives of Abner and Ishbosheth, of Michael, of David and of Joab, of Azahel and Abishai, men and women who in your providences came together at this particular time in history and some of whom died. Others will die soon after this. Many of them committing sins against you and one another. All of them doing this in the midst of a civil war. Father, these complicated messes are things that only you can sort out. Your sovereign hand is all over this, and yet it's so complicated for our eyes that we don't understand what's happening. So we ask, Father, that you would illumine us. As we look upon these things, help us to trust in you all the more because you do these things for your honor and glory and for our good. And as we live in uncertain times, Lord, help us to live by faith and not by sight to put our trust in the living God who in the midst of so many messy things is working out Your holy will. Help us to believe and to trust in that. Help us not to grow weary in well-doing as we pursue righteousness in our own lives and that of our families and in our society. And Father, may we honor Your name at all times. And we ask this in Christ's name for His sake and by His strength. Amen. Well, brethren, since David's ascendancy to the throne of Judah, the largest tribe in Israel, our text begins with the continuation of the civil war in Israel that we saw begin in last week's chapter, chapter 2 of the book. You will recall that the general of the army of Israel named Abner, once again identified here, and David's general, Joab, faced off at the pool of Hebron on the edge of Philistia. There a squad from each army fought to the death, both sides losing 12 men. This conflict, this skirmish, was to decide which, which army was stronger, which king should rule over Israel, Ishbosheth or David. But they were unsatisfied because both armies lost their men. No clear winner was there. And so the armies began the conflict in earnest, both armies vying for authority in Israel on behalf of their kings. This stalemate in the skirmish was unacceptable to both forces. The full-scale battle ensued, the civil war was on, and Joab's army routed Abner's army in this initial battle with Abner fleeing for his life. The general of Ishbosheth's army, the king of Israel. Abner was being pursued by a young warrior named Azahel. He was being pursued on foot. Now Azahel was no mere mortal in some respects. He was so fleet of foot that he was compared to a gazelle. Ab- or, excuse me, Azahel. Azahel the gazelle would have been an appropriate title for him. And during the pursuit, Abner warned Azahel to break off the pursuit or Abner would turn on him to kill him. Azahel, Joab's brother, refused to end the pursuit. Abner indeed turned on him and killed him with the blunt end of a spear. 
Abner would then return to the east side of the Jordan River and the kingdom of Ishbosheth, Saul's son who sat on the throne of Israel. And that's why we have this reference at the beginning of the chapter of the house of Saul so frequently. Ishbosheth, his son, is now on the king, uh, king's throne, though illegitimately because David had been anointed king in Israel. We must take note of a small detail that we find here in the text. In the initial battle, the squad from Abner's forces that participated in the initial skirmish was made up of Benjamites, twelve men from the the, uh, tribe of Benjamin. Now the tribe of Benjamin was the nearest northerly neighboring tribe to the tribe of Judah where David reigned. So if you can imagine on the west side of the River Jordan uh, was the tribe of Judah, and just above them, uh, likely very much uh, right across from the Sea of Galilee, was the Benjamite tribe above the tribe of Judah. Ishbosheth is on the east side of the Jordan River, and Abner and Ishbosheth chose to be over there to put a natural barrier between themselves and the enemies of Israel, both the Philistines and uh, the other enemies on the, on the west side of the Jordan. David, on the other hand, his kingdom is set up right, right there, right in the midst of these enemy neighbors, for he didn't fear them as Ishbosheth did. So the tribe of ben- Benjamin was the nearest northerly, northerly tribe to the tribe of Judah. I bring this to our attention because it may explain why Abner makes a special effort to speak to the Benjamites in verse 19. The tribes of Benjamin and Judah were very close, not just geographically. Their clans were very close in relationship. And we would see later in Israel's history that Judah and Benjamin would remain faithful to God where the other ten tribes of Israel would, remain, would become unfaithful and first go into captivity. The tribes of Benjamin and Judah so were very close and not just geographically. Here we see Abner, when he encourages the Israelites to ally with David, he makes a special plea to the tribe of Benjamin in verse 19. But before we go to those details, I want us to consider three aspects of this story that might not be evident at first glance. First, as I prayed, God is sovereign over the affairs of men, even very messy circumstances. God is bringing these things about for His glory and the good of His people. Second, a righteous king does justice, loves mercy, and walks humbly with God, and that is the the uh, demeanor of David in our passage today. And then lastly, justice is not just for the other guy, but at times must fall on us and those closest to us. So let's begin with God's sovereignty in this messy circumstance. It begins with Ishbosheth bearing false witness against Abner. Well, why is this important? This was the last straw for Abner. Later in the chapter, we see that Abner is being solicited by the elders of Israel to make peace with David and make David the king over all Israel. Yet Abner had set up Ishbosheth to that position. 
it's probably likely he did that because he knew he could manipulate uh, Ishbosheth. In just the next verse, uh, when when Abner uh, confronts Ishbosheth with this false accusation, Ishbosheth is fearful of Abner and doesn't try to stop him from making an alliance with David. So Ishbosheth bears false witness against Abner, accusing him of adultery with the concubine of his father Saul. And here God uses the sin of Ishbosheth to go to Abner to a righteous alliance with David. Abner sues for peace with David and without Ishbosheth's consent. Though Ishbosheth seems to consent when he gives up Michael to David at David's request. Nevertheless, it appears that Ishbosheth has no desire to lose his, his reign. And next week, we'll see that he loses his life. But suffice it to say, Abner has already made up his mind. This, this civil war is going to come to an end, and the people of Israel will submit to the kingship of David. David, after hearing of this, this uh, circumstance in verses 12-14, through 14, and it's helpful for us to read that, beginning in verse 12, then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all, Is- help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of 700 Philistine foreskins. David puts Abner in a precarious position here regarding Saul's daughter Michael, the sister of Ishbosheth. Abner comes to David, sends a messenger saying, Hey, I want to end this war, and I will bring you the tribes of Israel with me. Let's make a covenant to that end. David agrees. But not just lightly. He puts Abner in a bad circumstance, saying, Bring me Saul's daughter, Ishbosheth's sister. She was betrothed to me many years ago. She is my wife, and yet she's not with me. So he's telling the king of Israel the general to the king of Israel, I want you to steal away the king's sister and bring her to me, and then I'll know that you're serious about this. That's basically what's happening. Does that frighten Abner? Not in the least. And not only that, but then David sends messengers to Ishbosheth saying, give me my, my wife, Michael, who was betrothed to me many years ago and is not in my presence. Now, thinking that maybe this might cause some tension, I suspect, suspect between Abner and, and Ishbosheth, but it doesn't. Ishbosheth has no courage. Ishbosheth is impotent as a king in Israel. Abner despises him now and knows that. And so Ishbosheth sends Michael to David by way of Abner because he has no strength in him. And he has no will to fight David any longer. Michael's husband under Saul's house puts up a big fuss. 
And Abner silences her husband and readies for the end of hostilities by preparing to give Michael over to David. Ishbosheth can only stand by and watch his kingdom dissolve right in front of his eyes because of the might of Abner who has gone over to David. He is not willing to fight with David nor his own general. Now David is doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly before God in all this. This intrigue is all happening in Israel. It's going to come right into his own household here in a few minutes. But initially, David is following after what he believes are righteous acts for the betterment of the people of God. This political posturing by Abner and later Joab must not overshadow the righteousness that he must exhibit before his Lord. And David displays that kind of righteousness. Remember that in chapters 1 and 2, David multiple times asserts the importance of the anointed of God being honored. For those who raised their hands against the Lord's anointed, the penalty was death in the first two chapters of this book. We shall see that very death sentence again next week meted out on those who kill an innocent man who was the enemy of, God, of David. Yet David as king understands that justice must be meted out. Not only is God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, but he's a just God as well. And that needs to be evident before the people of God. Abner has raised an army against the house of David, the anointed one of God. Why was David showing mercy here then? Wasn't Abner due death just like the Amalekite in chapter 1 for raising his hand against the Lord's anointed? Wasn't Abner one who raised his hand against the Lord's anointed, David? After all, in our passage, he admits of the covenant that God had made with David that he would raise him to the throne. Shouldn't David lash out with justice against Abner? One would think that that would be the case. Yet in Abner's case, we see that he is relenting, repenting even, of his wickedness as he had gone against David, and that was a result of an injustice that was done to him by Ishbosheth, the bearing of false witness. You know, sometimes in our lives, brethren, sometimes in our lives, we don't see our own sin until sin is perpetrated on us. Then we see how insidious it is. When others sin against us, and we see that sin against us, it causes us to pause. I believe that's what's happening in the life of Abner. I believe he realizes the wickedness of his own ways and he's repenting. And David, who loves mercy as much as he loves justice, is going to withhold judgment against Abner because of his true repentance. Doing justice, loving mercy are the elements of walking humbly before God. Doing justice and loving mercy are the elements of walking humbly before God. Are we 
as zealous for justice as we are for mercy? And brethren, are we as zealous for mercy as we are for justice? Or is our zeal misplaced? We have to ask those questions of ourselves. And when we do, and we are serious in answering them with sincerity of heart, we have to come to the conclusion we don't do either one very well. Do we? And that humbles us before the living God. Well, there's another character in this mess. As messy as it's been already with a false accusation and then what appears to be repentance, now there's Joab. Well, think about Joab's situation. Think about his situation. The, 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 the people of Israel who are under Ishbosheth far outnumber the tribe of Judah, even though Judah is the largest tribe in Israel. They are far outnumbered. And who is, the, who is the champion or the general of this largest army? It's Abner, right? Joab, on the other hand, is the, the general of David's army. Now, Joab has had success after success against this larger army and Abner the, the general. But now all of a sudden, David is making peace with Abner. Who's going to get the position of chief of staff under David after peace is made? Will it be Abner? Or will Joab remain in that position? Who gets the place of honor? I don't know if that's in his mind. It's, we don't, we're not told that. But I do know what was in his mind at the time because the Scriptures make it plain. What's in the mind of Joab is vengeance. Vengeance. And what does the Scriptures teach us about vengeance? Who does that belong to? Does it belong to sinful men or a just and righteous God? Well, the Scriptures are clear. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But Joab doesn't see it that way. He believes his brother, Azahel, was murdered. Really? I thought they were at war. Wasn't he a casualty of war? How is that murder? But Joab is filled up with vengeance in his heart toward Abner. Even though Joab seems to have David's earthly kingdom in mind, his discussion with David, wait a minute, Joab or Abner was here and you spoke with him and then you let him go? What are you, out of your mind? There were only 20 of them, Abner and his men. Could, why didn't you keep him here? We had him. We cut off the head, the army falls. Shouldn't you have brought justice against him? Though David saw repentance, he, brought, he knew that Abner had brought to him all Israel. Joab didn't. So even though Joab seems to have David's earthly kingdom in mind, he doesn't have the kingdom of God in mind. He has one thing in mind, vengeance. That's more important to Joab than God's kingdom being advanced 
and reunited. He has no desire to let God take vengeance. He will take vengeance. And again, the Scriptures are clear. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And it's not just in Romans 12.19 that we read that. It's also mentioned in Deuteronomy 32.35 and verse 41 of that same chapter, as well as Hebrews 10.30. And so this brings us to the last point. Justice is not just for the other guy. Sometimes it's for me as well. Remember I said before that we're to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God, and we don't do the first two very well at all. Consequently, we don't do the last one very well. That's typical for us. It's a good thing that God's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, isn't it? Or we would be consumed, O house of Israel, O sons of Jacob, the Scriptures say. Because God doesn't change, in Malachi chapter 3, He says, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. That's a great promise. Because God doesn't change, we are not consumed. That speaks to God's grace and mercy, does it not? That He pours it out on His people even though we are ill-fitted for it. God lifts us up when we humble ourselves before Him. But justice must always be meted out. When we think of God's justice, we often think it's for the other guy, right? Not for me. Brother, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is just with all men and women. Not just the other guy. His justice must be meted out against us. Otherwise, sin is the victor and Satan's the winner. Not Christ. If God is slack concerning His promises, who is God? Ought He to be followed? I should hope not. Why would we want to follow a God who changes His mind? We would never know what righteousness truly is. We would never know what justice looks like or even mercy or grace or anything else because it would be fluid. It always changes. But God says, no, I don't change it. Because I don't change, you can count not only on my justice, but my mercy and grace as well. And for those who He's cast His eye toward, the apple of His eye, His people, His grace and mercy abound for eternity. You are the recipient of that when you are due His justice. The Scriptures make clear that every sin, no matter how great or small, will be judged by the Almighty. We know this because the Bible tells us that God is no respecter of persons. Your sin, every one of them, no matter how great or small, will be judged by the righteous, mighty hand of God. And God meets out justice in His ways and by His means and on whom He sees fit. 
Now that may, seem, that may mean that a wicked man will be destroyed by another wicked man, and such was the case here. By God's decree. Abner was in the midst of repentance, but he had done many great wicked things. And he was the object of Joab's vengeance. I don't know. I, can't, I, I can only speculate here. But had Abner not elevated Ishbosheth to the throne of Israel, many lives would not have been lost in a civil war. Abner's sins were great. His sins were great. But he did not see come to fruition the thing that he desired, and that was the reuniting of Israel to Judah under the reign of David. It had not yet come to pass when Joab took his life. When we get to heaven, we'll have to question God the Father about what's happening in this circumstance. Yes, we understand men are being judged for wickedness, but how is it that it appears that Abner, a man who's repenting, seems to be judged here? How is it, Lord? How does that work out in your economy? In your decree? Joab's much easier to understand. He too will die. But he's a wicked man who is showing forth his wickedness when he takes vengeance upon Abner. God justly judges both of those men as well as David in the midst of this circumstance. And David shows us something that we should not lose sight of. And that is his lamentations for Abner. Abner raised his hand against the Lord's anointed. He should have been put to death just for that alone. That was enough. But when Abner shows repentance, when he humbles himself before the king, the king gives him a meal. He and the men with him. A feast spreads it before them. Isn't that a picture of Christ for us? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and lifted us out of our sin. And what's He do? He sets it before us a meal. One that is a covenant. The sign of a covenant that I will keep you eternally. We're about to take the cup of the new covenant. David shows that, that very kind of graciousness toward Abner. And then when Abner leaves the house of David, he is caught up in the whirlwind of this messy circumstance and Joab takes his life. Joab's going to have to answer for that. David pronounces a curse on both he and his family. And it appears that that curse is honored by God. It's an imprecatory prayer, so to speak. And we'll see how that works out in a few weeks. Brethren, David is the example of righteousness. When a, when a man who repents and shows that repentance dies... David weeps at his grave. And he brings all Israel to weep as well. 
Here's a man who died likely for his own sins at the vengeance of Joab, and yet God is honoring his repentance by and through the king. Again, does that not point to the King of kings and Lord of lords? Indeed it does. Brethren, sin always has consequences. Some of them are lived out in this life. All of them are lived out in the next life. Sometimes God is gracious and merciful and doesn't judge us directly for the sins in this life. But He always meets that out in the next life. And who will take the penalty for those sins? Is it Jesus your Savior in whom you trust? Who has already died that you might live if you merely put your trust in Him? That you humble yourself and admit and own your own sin? Is it Jesus and His death on the cross? Is that the death sufficient for your sins? Or will you have to endure God's judgment yourselves? Now I look around this room, I know most of you, some better than others, and I see people who want to honor God in their lives, who want to repent, but I don't know your hearts. No man knows the heart save for God Himself. So I plead with you, not knowing your hearts, if you've never put your trust in Christ, you run the risk of suffering eternal damnation under the mighty hand of God. Should today be your last breath, or tomorrow, or any day that it come to fruition when you've not trusted in Christ. But if you trust in Christ, if you put your trust in the One who gave Himself a ransom for many, the Bible says, who is a propitiation for our sins, meaning He stood in the place of us and endured the wrath of the living God for us. If you trust in Him and His work on the cross for your sins, Believe that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved, the Scriptures say. And I say that with the greatest confidence. I plead with you. I plead with you. Deal with your sin. Because God surely will. Let's pray together.